Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Reed Omery, the Carol D. and Henry P. Pendergrass Professor and Chair of the Department of Radiology and Radiological Sciences and Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. An interventional radiologist who has pioneered image-guided therapies for hepatocellular carcinoma, Dr. Omri serves on the Board of Directors for the Society of Chairs of Academic Radiology Departments and is President-Elect of the Association of University Radiologists. He founded and directs the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine's Medical Innovators Development Program and co-leads the Medical Center's strategic planning efforts. As host of his podcast, Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future, and through an active presence on social media, Dr. Omri is a passionate proponent of healthcare innovation and fostering the next generation of radiologists and healthcare leaders through inspirational and supportive leadership. Reed, welcome. It's great to be here, Jeff. Such an honor. Thank you. Let's start with your earliest days. Where were you born? I was born in the oldest living city in the world, Damascus, Syria. Yes. Wow. And I, uh, I immigrated when I was all of one year old, so I do not remember Syria at all and have never had the opportunity to go back. Well, hopefully that opportunity will present itself at some point. Where did you immigrate to? To the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, so I, I grew up I grew up in the uh, Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. and spent uh, all of my time there until college. And that's where I, I went out to uh, the Chicago area and spent pretty much half of my life in the, in the Chicago area. So, so what brought your family to the United States? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. My, my father was of Kurdish descent and had actually been, the, of all things, the police commissioner of Damascus, which was quite unusual for someone of Kurdish descent. He had come out in the 1950s to go to graduate school at Columbia in New York City and went, worked a little bit at the U.N., uh, went back to uh, Damascus, but as sort of the new leadership uh, emerged in Syria, it really wasn't the best place to be. So I think we're kind of a, a classic, if you will, immigrant story of coming to the United States, and you know, very grateful for, for, for that. Now, it seems a little bit unusual for the typical immigrant story and that he had been in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, attending a university. Tell me a little bit about his backstory, about how he came to study in the U.S. and then go back to become police commissioner. In yeah, it was. Uh, and, and of course, all, all this is uh, sort of the lore of our, of our family. And, and as with uh, lore, it's really hard to, to, to verify any of this. My my dad was 
you know, he came from a from a poor background, and apparently he had done he had done the best on the standardized testing that was done in Syria. This certainly wasn't anything it, it administered by the College Board in the U.S., but that had given them the opportunity, I, I, I think, to to rise. And then he he was in in some unusual way he was offered the chance to go to grad school either at Columbia or Princeton in the 1950s, and so he he chose uh, New York City. My brother was born there, and then he he decided to go back, uh, much to the dismay of my mother, who uh, was like, "We built a life in Queens. Uh, why do we want to go back?" But that dismay, of course, was nothing like the dismay when, after my sister and I were born, when I think my restless uh, father wanted to come back uh, to the States for good. So he was in the role of police commissioner of Damascus at the time he decided to disengage and move. Yes, apparently. And there's a, there's a picture of, uh, that I have of him at, uh, in Damascus airport with his buddies, they've like hoisted them, him on their, uh, on their shoulders. And it's, it's like the, the, you know, we're, we're ready to launch you back to the, the States. So that, that was something I've, it's a pretty powerful photo that I, uh, that, that I. Yeah, it sounds like it's, is your father still alive? Have you? No, no. Unfortunately, he he uh, he, he passed away. He he did have the chance uh, to meet my uh, my oldest son about uh, twelve years ago, uh, soon after he was born. But fortunately, he had a long uh, a long history of cognitive decline. Yeah. Did you have a chance to validate some of these stories uh, with him? Well, it, it's uh, you know my my mother my mother is still alive and she's. 91 years old. And so every time I, uh, I get a chance to speak with her, I, uh, you know, she'll share something with us that, that we had no idea. And, and it's, it's, it's one of the great things I think about generations and us learning the wisdom of the previous generations and being able to pass it on to, uh, to our children. Yeah. A a lot of golden nuggets there. Uh, I imagine Upon locating in the Washington, D.C. area, what did your father uh, and mother do uh, as you were growing up to help support the family? Yeah, so when, when my dad first came out uh, alone uh, without, the, uh, without the family, he, he worked at a gas station and he worked as a cashier at a pharmacy and then really what he knew was, was the language. So he became a, uh, a translator for Arabic. And then when my mom came out with the kids and subsequently took, uh, took a job, uh, she became a, a, a teacher. Uh, so what they knew was the language. And that, that's really uh, is a, the classic uh, focus on, on education. And I, I think that that's um, one of the real values that they instilled had instilled me growing up. Yeah, I would imagine that your dad's role as police commissioner implies a substantial amount of leadership capabilities that he um, was able to uh, realize during his time in Damascus. Did you have a sense growing up of his leadership and 
Did you take any leadership lessons in particular from him? Well, that, that's a great question. You know, my, my father was an introvert, and I think we often, uh, we often think, frankly, incorrectly as, uh, of, of leaders as these, you know, these charismatic souls who enter a room and then just, you know, everybody, everybody aligns with them, and, and this is something that they've done since they were kids. Of course, none of that is, is, is true. There's every type of, of leader. And I, I, I think my, uh, my father was really was quiet. And that, that's certainly been a, a lesson for me. I, I'm, I, I tend to be more, much more on the extroverted side than my, my father. But the lesson is that there, there are so many leaders who are introverts. And that's, that's great. And that's something that we, we really need to empower all different forms of uh, leadership. Yeah, so true. What was your first job growing up as a kid? Well, it depends how you find it. I, as a as a young boy, I established my own like lawn mowing business. I I, uh, I would mow a lot of the neighbors' lawns, and I had a paper route for a little while. But my first actual, if you will formal job i was i was working at tj max which is something that was drilled into me uh it was not a discount store it was off price uh so i was a, i was a cashier which really taught me to be able to speak with anyone about anything and uh, i could uh during the course of the day i would meet dozens and dozens of people and you have a little bit of time to chat with them who would have thought that that ever would have been a skill that that would benefit me injuring the field of medicine but the, the ability to speak with anyone i think is something that uh as a physician uh as a physician leader it, it's a really important Looking back, were there any particular defining moments and influences from your childhood that you consider having an impact on you today? Well, you know, my, I, I'd like to, to say a couple things. So one would be my, my older brother. My older brother, he's 13 years uh, older than me. And as a, as a kid, when he was in grad school in San Diego, I used to spend my summers with him. And so I thought, I thought it was just normal to get up in the morning, go to the lab until 5 p.m., come home for, for dinner and go back to the lab until 11 o'clock at night, which was pretty much the schedule that he, he followed. And, and that, that just, he, he has advised me throughout my, my, uh, my education process and my career. Uh, and the second thing I would just say has been my teachers growing up, starting seventh grade and through high school, they had a, just a profound impact on how I think. And uh, I'm, I'm so lucky to have had the, uh, the, the teachers that have been. Those teachers from public school throughout your Yes, Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was a public school kid. And I, I, had, a, I had a math teacher in seventh grade who uh, the first math quiz I took in seventh grade, I got a and I was like, oh, my goodness, I thought I was good in math. And he, he had this expression. He was from Brooklyn. He had this expression. It was up on the wall. It was called 
uh, Reed DeWoids, D-E, and then Woids, W-O-I-D-S. And, uh, and he would always say how you have to, <laughs> you have to read DeWoids if you're asked to do something just do what, what is asked and, and understand. And, and so a math teacher actually expressing that really, it taught me at, at a young age to, to, to care about the detail. Yeah. Excellent. And your older brother, uh, what field is he in? So he, he was a, he is a, a physician scientist, uh, you know, leader. I mean, he has, uh, he's a gastroenterologist by training. He actually had, had spent time for many years at, at your previous institution at Stanford. And then he, he became as a physician, the chair of physiology at, uh, at Michigan. So a, a physician leader of a basic science department. And then he ended up, you know, leading research for, for Michigan medicine. And, and recently he's, he's moved on to, to lead research at Rutgers. He's, he's had, uh, he's had quite a, quite a career and influenced me, uh, profoundly. It's really interesting the extent to which, uh, science has, uh, imbued the careers of both you and your brother. Was science particularly emphasized by your parents growing up? Well, you know, science was for for me. It it actually in, in in an unusual way. I I I was maybe seven years old, and I I I picked up one of those Cracker Jacks. Uh, you remember the Cracker Jacks, and they had the prize. I remember I I, I took this little box up to my room, eager for the uh, to open it up and see what the prize was, and the prize. Uh, was a little booklet, a little postage stamp booklet on the planet. And, you know, I, I saw this and I was just blown away. And I went out that night and I, I looked up at the sky and I, I thought I could see all those, those planets. And that, that really made me hungry uh, to learn about astronomy. And by the time I had finished third grade, I had read every single book in our public school library on astronomy. And that that, that uh, uh, so of all things, it was astronomy that uh, that really impacted me. The, the the notion of being able to look at the sky and see stuff from like just these just profound distances in time that were uh, almost unimaginable. Uh, so so that uh, that that gave me the if you will that gave me the spark. That uh, that on my own, I just I was very I was very interested. And from there to math and chemistry, and I just I I, I like the um, uh, I just I like the concept of trying to understand the world through science, and that that has has stuck with me in many ways. Despite that grade that you recounted from mathematics, you managed to uh, recover pretty well, as, and you became one of the rare folks who completed your undergraduate and medical degrees in just six years. To my knowledge, uh, Northwestern was the first university to offer this pathway in the U.S., and as a high school student, how did you decide to commit to this accelerated pathway, and what active steps did you take to pursue it? Well, it's, 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 it's a great question. So remember when I said I was 
out visiting my brother uh, when he was at UCSD. He was in grad school getting his PhD. So I, I, I watched him enter science. But then uh, I watched a transition happen. He decided to go to medical school. And uh, when I was in high school, he ended up going to the University of Miami, which had at that time, believe it or not, it, it sounds crazy, a two-year PhD to MD program. So when I was 16 years old, I went out to the University of Miami and I worked in a biochemistry lab while he was in medical And I, I first became CPR trained along with his class. I remember I just tagged along as a 16-year-old and, you know, being, uh, being exposed to all these other medical and, and just recognizing that there was this ability to apply the science to benefit people and getting back to that. I, 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 I am somewhat on the extroverted side and I, uh, I enjoy people and the ability to, to, to apply it in a way that, that can make a difference to humans was something that appealed to me. And so as a, as a high schooler, I was, I was pretty intent on, could I, could I get into a, type of program that uh, would allow me to, to do this. And so I was, I was really lucky to, to find Northwestern. For many, the undergraduate years are a time of exploration, both academic and social. Help us understand your undergrad experience within this context. So my undergrad experience in objectively was shortened because it was two years. Subjectively, it was also expanded. And it was expanded because I didn't need to worry about getting into medical. So all I needed to do was, and we used to have an expression that, that, that C equals MD. I just needed a pass and then I, w- I would be assured of a spot. So I was able to explore through my non-science classes a lot of, of other uh, courses in humanities, philosophy, and especially in art history. So I, ended up, I took five different art history classes, including a, a graduate level course. Who would have known that the, the visual, sort of the connection between observational astronomy, art history, it would then also go right into, uh, right into radiology. I had... I, you know, some people call it, which I, I, I think is, is perhaps, it's not so accurate, the photographic memory, but boy, could I look at an image of a, a, a single image and it would just etch it in my mind during my art history classes. And that ended up being a skill that I think was uh, translatable into radiology, the whole pattern rec- aspect of it. That's fascinating and absolutely fantastic. So as you progress into medical school, what do you identify as the factors that led you to radiology? Well, I, I had a, I'll answer it. I, I entered medical school thinking about another visual field that was dermatology. I had, you know, I, I got to know my, my dermatologist as a teenager really well. I was one of the first people on Accutane. I mean, I had, uh, I had, I had acne. And so I was very grateful for 
everything that he had done. And I, I went probably within a month of starting medical school, and I went to meet a dermatology faculty member. And we sometimes, in ways uh, we have no understanding in the moment, we can influence people positively or negatively. And in one fell swoop, this faculty member in, uh, in dermatology, I'm sure without knowing, completely turned me off to dermatology by, by saying, why would you ever, how would you even know that you want to go into dermatology? I'm like, I don't know, but that's why I'm here. So, and then I, um, I, 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 I thought a lot about the, the surgical fields and it ended up being the opposite of my dermatology experience by going to an information session on radiology. Uh, it was taught by Bob Vogelson, who was the, the head of, of interventional radiology. And unlike the dermatologist, where I instantly knew I didn't want to be like him, I, I heard and I met Bob Vogelsang, and I was like, I, I want to be exactly like him him and and I, I i set up a time to meet with him and he a big music fan like uh like i am and and was and we we started trading vinyl records and i just i, I found that i just fit into that culture it's kind of a surgical culture in interventional but different a lot more maybe more laid back if you will and so that that's uh that's what sparked me that's uh yeah that's a great recounting and um i i know bob bob well fa- fantastic mentor uh, to have uh i i have to recount uh at least reflect on the fact that the aesthetics of some of the images uh that i saw as a medical student uh, drew me toward radiology and in particular i will call upon two types of images air contrast barium enemas and um and arteriograms, particularly like mesenteric arteriograms that just seemed so visually striking. Were there any images in particular with your art history mind that you saw in those early radiology days that just said, yeah, I, I want to make some of those images? Well, it, it, it's, it's interesting. One of the, one of the basic tenets that, that Bob Olsing would, uh, uh, would imbue us as, uh, as, as fellows in interventional radiology was that, that we own the quality of those images. Like we, you know, we damn well better take a good uh, set of images because they reflect us. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the mesenteric uh, uh, arteriogram. Those are indeed stunning. Uh, I think arteriography is um, there, there's something so powerful uh, about that, that the tree-like structure. Uh, and uh, when we take those images in real time, I mean, then we become photographers uh, of the, the human body. It's pretty amazing. Before attending the University of Virginia for radiology residency, you completed an internship in internal medicine in Albuquerque, New Mexico. What attracted you to Albuquerque? So what attracted me to Albuquerque was I was I, I knew I had a year to spend between medical school and residency. And I chose I chose Albuquerque based on essentially what would give me area under the curve, the the, the greatest set of new 
and I I didn't know anybody. It wasn't it wasn't like Northwestern was a feeder system to Albuquerque. They were they were like completely separate entity. I remember my my first rotation was the ICU, and on my very first day, there there was there was a patient in the ICU who was um, Native American, you know, indigenous, and they, they had a medicine doc, doctor come in. And I was just like, this would never happen in Chicago. This would never happen. And, and even the way the, the, the residents carried themselves, there, there was, uh, you know, the senior resident in the, the ICU, she was, she was dressed in a, like, everything was formal in Chicago. This was like as, it's just so different. And then the bolo tie, like what's up with that? That was just so, so I just, it ended up being an incredible experience. I'm so glad I did it. I'm very grateful to the University of New Mexico for providing that opportunity. I learned a ton. And then my, my co-residents, the people who lived in Albuquerque and around New Mexico, they taught me so much. Do you have a collection of bolo ties to this day? You know, I, I have one bolo tie. That, that, that's, 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 and I, I realized that the different types, and, and I, I was drawn to the, the Hopi uh, types. During your residency in Virginia, you were awarded an RSNA Research Award to use MR spectroscopy to measure brain metabolites after gamma knife irradiation in rats. As a resident striving to learn the finer points of radiology, why pursue a small animal imaging project? I, I was given the opportunity by one of my mentors, Bruce Hillman, to take a year off to, to engage in research. And uh, so I, I just... I decided to do that, and of course, my co-residents thought I was absolutely nuts. Are you what? And I I could not express in words why I felt right. I wanted to to do it, and uh, and Bruce Hillman was really practical, and he said, you know, so you'll get involved with research. I'd like you to to get a get a master's degree, and I, I got a, once a master's degree in this kooky field that that for about 25 years nobody paid attention. It was called epidemiology. No, it was like, did you get a master's of public health? No, I got a master's degree in epidemiology. Well, what's that? Well, and so now, of course, everyone knows what epidemiology is uh, in this post-COVID world, and so getting involved with animal research, there, there's, there's the opportunity, I, I think, to control a lot of the factors compared to a, to a clinical trial. And I, I ended up, uh, you know, a lot of my research career was based on animal research that then translate to humans and then trying to answer the questions that we had from our patients through animal research, you know, it was, it was a flywheel. So I think it was really helpful for me to be comfortable in, in both animal research and clinical studies. And that, that helped me, I think, with my career a ton. 
Yeah, I mean, I couldn't help reflect on, you know, what almost seems like polar ends of a spectrum where, you know, you're imaging uh, metabolites in a rat brain and then you're studying populations of humans through epidemiology. Uh, of course, uh, translating uh, basic and translational research into clinical trials uh, doesn't necessarily involve uh, population-based considerations where where did you see the synergies at that moment in time? And what led you to sort of pursue what almost feels like diametric ends of a spectrum? Well, I, I, I certainly, I, I didn't do it consciously. I just, I, I thought that I would, it, it would be helpful to get a master's degree. That's what Bruce Hillman had, had, had taught me. And then looking at where the opportunity was for research, of, of all things, I, I, was, I was essentially in was a radiology resident in a neurosurgical lab. It's just one of those things like there was the opportunity and I went there and, and I, I, I remember a, a lot of the, the studies that I did were with either biomedical engineers or with neurosurgeons. I, I think that cross-fertilization has been something that's always been a, a part of me since since being a, a kid and, and feeling comfortable working with other disciplines and other spheres. And what, so whether it was, uh, uh, whether it was animal research or, or population, it just, there is a connection if we take, if we take time or even if we don't understand it, if we just trust that it's going to, to lead to something, I, I, I think that that's every time I've, I've ever, sort of embedded myself in with, with individuals who think differently I have been I've been lucky they have uh, they have helped me understand the world using a different framework and uh, that that's something that I think is really important for for leaders to under, understand that there are different mental models there's not only one and the more we can understand different mental models the more I think we can try to understand what is going on at a particular time and place and try to, to influence it to make it better. As a radiology resident, were there any strong epiphanies that you realized while studying epidemiology? What I realized fairly quickly was that in setting up a, a study design, had to really think how to uh, simplify it and uh, focus on what was most important because otherwise the the statistics would get too complicated the sample size would get enormous and so i what I learned from epidemiology was uh, the the importance of thinking critically about how we want to design a study which then gets back to the most important question, which is what are we trying to accomplish and how can we, get, how can we accomplish it as, uh, as fast as possible? Amongst destinations for radiology residency, what led you to the University of Virginia? Well, you know, I grew up in, in Northern Virginia. And so I, I didn't, I mean, I had a lot of friends who had gone to college in, in Charlottesville or in Williamsburg or, in, or elsewhere in the, in the state. I wanted to get away, which 
fortunately, going to Northwestern offered me that. But I was always curious, what, what would it be like to be in Charlottesville? And so I, uh, it was one of those things, once again, hard to express in words. When I, when I, visited, uh, when I visited UVA, I, during my, my interview, I, 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 I really liked it. And maybe we, we can consider omens as good or bad. I had a used Toyota Tercel that was my parents. And it, it actually broke down in Charlottesville. I had to, I had to get it towed to the shop. And I, I think that, that was telling me something. There's a sign for those who are, are uh, willing to pay close enough attention. And what drew you to interventional radiology? Oh, that, that, that was the, the, the ability to try and the technology, the ability to fix things, that blend of what was really almost like science fiction and like, wait, you mean we get to, we get to deploy these science fiction devices to help someone, right? You know, immediately and wait, and then we get to like try and develop those, those science fiction devices. We get to use all this fancy stuff right at our fingertips. You can actually like right then and there just feel like we're making making a difference and so and and the culture i i i love the the culture of inter, of interventional and the, the the notion of working as part of a team that that was something that that really drew me now straight out of residency you moved to madison wisconsin and became an assistant professor of radiology but just two years later you were back at northwestern would you take us through that part of your journey? Yeah, so I was I I felt really lucky at Madison to be uh, mentored by Tom Grist and by Fred Lee, and they helped me so much. They helped me, you know, with 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 research. They helped me with growing a clinical practice. They helped me understand how to link them. Once again, that, that, whole, that whole concept of, of learning from others and then uh, being able to bring it in, into my own field. And so my, my time in Madison was, was really critical to my, my development as a clinician scientist. Why did you leave? What, what drew you back to Northwestern? And why not have just gone straight back to Northwestern from UVA? Well, it was such a struggle for me to, should I just stay at Northwestern after my fellowship or should I go to Madison? And what drew me to Madison was the ability to get involved in this, this nascent technology, interventional MR. And, and the, the research infrastructure at Northwestern wasn't, at, at that time, wasn't as built up as at Madison. So I felt I could go to Madison and I, I didn't think I would come, come back so quickly to Northwestern. But I, I, I remember when I was, after a couple years, I remember Bob Vogel saying, you know, the opportunity to go work with the person who had ultimately inspired me to choose my, my career. And, you know, Bob had a, a like a really supportive way of, of mentorship. And I, I remember he, he asked me, are, are you ready 
are you ready to, to run your own? And I, I was like taken aback and I was like, yeah, I'm ready. Like, 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 how could I not, not be like, hell yeah, I'm ready. And, and he just said, that's all, that's all I need to know. And then I, I, I went, I went back to Northwestern and Dieter Ensman helped, you know, help me. And then I, I was connected to more mentors. I was connected to, to Debbie Lee. PhD and he helped me a ton. And so I, I, I kept finding, I kept finding these new mentors who, who would imbue me with a, a different way of thinking and some really concrete, practical knowledge, how to write, how to write a grant, how to, how to come up with the specific aims, how to collaborate with others who might have the resources that I didn't have. And as a as an early career faculty member, I didn't have all the all the funding, but I, I was a quick I was a quick learner. And if you if I I realized if you if you partner with somebody who is a successful researcher and you bring a skill set that they do not have. So me, I was an interventional radiologist. That was the that was the skill set that I had that my research partners didn't. So I could help, uh, I could help shape the, the, the research by thinking, how might we apply this to, to patients? And then I just became a sponge to learn all the, the, the research methods from, from the experts who understood that. And that was something that I just continued as a, as a flywheel to, to, to grow and grow my research career. So it sounds like collaboration, both within the department and beyond the department, really were critical to helping you build your programs and influenced your work. What, what steps did you take to nurture those collaborations? Yeah, so, so the, the collaboration, yes, yeah, so it's collaboration with an asterisk. It's collaboration specifically with, with people who have different, entirely different skills and maybe located even in different areas. And so I, I, I was, um, I would just say I, I, through my whole life, I, I've been fluent in the, the, the language of connecting with others. I, I just, something as a, as a soccer player, I'd hang out with the baseball players. I mean, it was just one of those things that, that I've always done. And so in, in trying to grow my, my career, recognizing the, the value of, of working with biomedical engineers. And then at Northwestern, the medical campus was in Chicago. The university campus was in Evanston. And, uh, you know, I'd gone to undergrad at Evanston. I'd gone to medical school in Chicago. I felt really comfortable going back and forth. And I was able, as my career continued to grow, I, I became I, I became the if you wanted a, if you were on the Evanston campus and wanted, a, did anything related to imaging and you needed to connect with somebody on, at the medical center, it would be me because like I knew the, I knew. So I was like, it made it easy for others. Like if, because if you're on the Evanston campus and you want to, you want to do something that, that could benefit patients, well, you need to connect with somebody who understands patients. And so, so recognizing and advocating for what, what value I would bring to, the, to a research collaboration 
what was something I, I just, I just did. And I felt comfortable, uh, doing that. And it really was, it was like developing a network and using that network to benefit the entire network. I think, I think that that was the, the key. It wasn't, it wasn't transactional, it was relational. And we, we know from all the, uh, the, the work in the neurosciences, when there are synapses that aren't really used, they become pruned. And so we, we need, to, we need to, to, to grow those new connections. For those connections to be meaningful, we need to actually to continue to use them and work together. That, that's, that, that I think was my, I, I, I couldn't express it in words at the time, but it just felt natural. It sounds like that tendency, that characteristic of yours to constantly seek these connections and to take the steps to travel between Evanston and Chicago to help nurture those connections was something that feels innate as opposed to somebody pulled you aside and said, hey, Reed, this is how you're going to be successful. You go over there and come back and meet these people. Is that a accurate characterization? Well, I, I think the, the comfort of working with others ha- has always been innate. I, I remember sort of mid-career, I remember Nick Bryan came. He was the chair at Penn at, 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 at the time. And he, uh, he came to do an external review of our Department of Radiology at Northwestern. And he had given me some, some advice that I believe he had gotten it from Alan Elster. I don't, even, I don't even know where he got it. But the, the advice was, get out of radiology. And it wasn't, it wasn't that radiology isn't good. It's, it was quite the opposite. It was that to help radiology, we need to step outside of it and learn and bring something back. And so that gave me, you know, he gave me that advice. And that gave me, in words, kind of, and helped me understand that yes, this actually is a viable and useful strategy. It's not just something that that I, I, I kind of, it's like hanging with the baseball players as a soccer player. It's just like there's actually some legitimacy to this. And there's an intellectual reason and there's a social reason. And there's fundamentally a, a, a reason to benefit patients why we need to do this. And and so that that's that's just been and that's been something that I've I've continued, frankly, throughout my my career. It's 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 the fun. It's it's at those interfaces is where we can make a difference, and it's at those interfaces where we change, and it's at those interfaces where people are unsure who we are. Is that a radiologist, or is that a is that an epidemiologist? Is that a radiologist or is that a computer scientist? Is that a, is that a radiologist or is that a, a neuroscientist? You know, all of those. That's where we want to be in radiology because that's where we know we're making the most difference. Well said. You know, as an interventional radiologist, much of your research has a diagnostic imaging focus, particularly using advanced magnetic resonance imaging techniques. Is, is this paradoxical or logical? Oh, it's, it's, it's completely logical because I, I, once again, I, I had partnered with Andy Larson, just a brilliant MR physicist. We learned interventional oncology together and we, 
taught each other and we blended our lab groups. And so having grad students who could do pulse sequence design and we would test them in the animals and then move, move it over into clinical studies. So that just, as an interventional radiologist, you're not supposed to be comfortable with MR. And that's exactly, you know, there it's 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 like easier, pretty much for anything. It's easier to to succeed by linking two fields than it is by being central within one, because if we're central, like they're already giants there, and and what's central has already been done. It's hard to like we 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 reach an inflection point when we go to the map's edge. That's where. That's where we can start changing our fields. And over time, as, as when we go to that map's edge and we start building, we start building settlements there, that, that slowly becomes the center of our field. And then it, it's kind of this insidious concept. And after a while, people are like, well, well, that's just radiology. That's what we do, or that's interventional radiology. Yeah. Marvelous visual imagery. And I couldn't agree with you more about being at the map's edge. Fantastic. Um, as your time evolved at Northwestern, what was your approach to administrative assignments and which did you pursue that were most gratifying or taught you the most? One of the leaders of research within the Department of Radiology at, at Northwestern uh, was recruited away, and he was an MD. And uh, I was still maybe like five years. And I remember being asked if I wanted to direct your search for the Department of Radiology because it was important to have an MD to help foster that. And I remember not really wanting do it because I thought it would pull me away from my own research. And I, and I, I still was young. And then so Eric, Eric Russell was the chair, very supportive. Eric taught me so much. He just said, well, you know, why don't you g- g- give it a try? And so I did get along with, with people. And I think that was critical. And so I remember, so I, I like kind of reluctantly, I, all right, I'll, I'll do this. And then it was announced at a faculty meeting. And then uh, right after the faculty meeting, I ran into one of the body image who point blank looked at me and said, oh, so there's, there's, there's nothing that, that will, will destroy a promising academic career as much as administration. I was like, oh, I made the, I made the mistake. Here I was here, like I, I was worried about that. But then I, I just, I, I realized in trying to, to grow my own research, I was also learning how to grow the research portfolio for the whole department. And I learned a, a ton, most, much of it the, the, by trial and error. We, we, ended up, we ended up growing and growing and growing. Say maybe 2008, Eric Russell... Uh, who was so deeply supportive of my career, was supposed to go the, the Kellogg uh, School of Management, one of the story business in America, was putting on for the first time ever a course called Business for Scientists 
And they, they were having it. It was going to be a 90-hour course over three long weekends. And they were bringing together the deans and institute directors and chairs from across the university and medical. And Eric couldn't go. And he kindly suggested that I, that I go play. And so I, you know, I went to this, I, I felt like I was, you know, I was, I was like featherweight and there were like all these heavyweight fighters and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm totally out, outranked. I, I felt like I was the youngest, the youngest person that I, I just didn't belong. But I'll, I'll tell you, Jeff, what, uh, that was transformational for in understanding leadership. It was not only what was taught, and I learned a ton from the professor. Did I did I learn? But it it actually gave me the the confidence to actually think of myself as uh, as a, until that time I thought there was something magical. It was a mystery that was uh, passed through a secret language. To others, and I didn't know how to how I didn't understand that language. But I realized, being at this uh, this course, that all the other chairs and deans they they they're they're just like the rest. They're just like anybody, and they 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 they've got senses of humor. They don't know everything. I think they'd know everything, but they don't know everything. No one knows everything, and so so that gave me, I would say, the the confidence to to recognize that. There, there, uh, there wasn't anything magical. It could be, it could be learned. Here was this, this like, people would go to business school to learn how to manage people. They'd learn how, learn how to lead. And it, it, going back to that whole like, frankly, the 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 BS of the natural born leader. Like that, that, that that's what I had been. I had been raised with this concept. It had seemed weird to me that you would learn about leadership. That's how everybody does it. Everybody learns. Amongst your administrative roles, you served as chief of interventional radiology at the Jesse Brown VA Hospital in Chicago. What leadership competencies did you gain by leading in the VA system? That was leadership really involves, I I think, a a yin-yang blend of patience and impatience. And you need both. And being in the VA system, uh, if you are not patient, there's just zero, there's zero way, zero possibility of, of seating in, in that. And when we, we took over interventional at the, the Jesse Brown VA, it was, there, there were so many unexpected challenges. Took, it took us over three months to get paid. And I was, I was the last person. It took, for me, it took me even more than that because the VA had transposed my social security number. And so, so they, they were like cutting checks to this, this, like whoever is like transposed with my social security number, you, may, you might have a check uh, waiting for, for you from the federal government. So, so that, that it taught me how we can, we can navigate uh, when there are these, uh, these 
these structures um, that, that may be designed for a very good reason and yet feel that they're, uh, they're impeding what we want to do and trying then to bring others along. Uh, so it's one thing for me to understand that, but then to bring others along who naturally as interventional radiologists, super impatient and like, come on, let's, let's get this done now. Now, what do you, what do you mean we have to? So, so that it, it, it taught me a ton. And it also, I, I made, I learned a lot from, uh, from my colleagues outside of radiology. Once again, the chief of anesthesiology and, uh, the chief of staff, they, they, they taught me a lot. After 12 years on the faculty at Northwestern, you moved to Tennessee to become the chair of radiology at Vanderbilt University. How did you know it was time to move? I was very comfortable at Northwestern, very grateful for everyone. Uh, I would say I had reached the point in my career where I, I took far more joy in helping careers of others than I, I did with my own career. I think fundamentally the, the concept of I have a low threshold for, for boredom and I just need to sh- shake things up. And it was very comfortable there. And I think that's, uh, that was my cue that um, I wanted to take on, you know, a bigger challenge that could, could help uh, support the careers of others. Did you look at other chair positions at the time? You know, I, I looked at a, I looked at a few, it, but what I only wanted to, to take a position where I, I felt that I could be successful. And in choosing a chair position, I, what interested me the most was the area under the curve in terms of impact. So I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to go to a, a place where I, I, I thought everything was there. And in particular, there was a lot of opportunity that was like right there outside of radiology or outside of what, uh, was being harnessed. And I, I would just serve as a, as a link. And, and this just, this was such a stellar, stellar opportunity for that. What characteristics did you recognize uh, during that early evaluated phase that gave you the sense that there was a large area under the curve? Well, the, the people across Vanderbilt were, were amazing. The, the culture here is described, and it almost sounds ha- hackneyed when you hear it. Well, you know, it's, it's collegial and it's collaborative and uh, it's creative. And that sounds... You know, that's, that sounds like a platitude. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, it was unlike any place I, I've been and the, the willingness of people outside of radiology to want to help radiology. That's really what's stood out for me as a potential incoming chair to realize, wait a minute, there, there are people here who would who would like radiology to be successful and would like me to be successful. 
in, instead of coming from a perspective of maybe people wanting to take, take, take or turf battles or whatever, it was this, this almost like utopian, like, Hey, we're here to help you. I, I, I was, was really taken aback. Tell us a bit about your department as you encountered it upon your arrival and what priorities have you pursued over the almost 10 years that you have been chair to realize the potential that you saw? So I, I, I think what struck me upon arriving here was the, was the bimodal age distribution of the faculty. There were a lot of early career faculty, and then there were a lot of, of very late career faculty who were close to retirement. And so what became abundantly clear was the, the way to change the department was through recruiting. That's how we could change the direction of the department and culture of the department. So fast forward now, and, and I, honestly, Jeff, I, I, I think I've probably, we have about 130 faculty. I, I think I've, I've recruited about 100. That was my biggest surprise when I when I landed. How much time it takes, and how and how it's obviously it's vitally important. When we recruit, we we bring somebody with a different perspective, and we bring hopefully has the energy to want to uh, change things to make them better. And so that's if I were to to distill the you know the the, the strategy is, is you recruit great people. Know, give them the resources to be successful, have their, have their success in mind, give them something to, to focus on, align people, and, and then you know, get out of their way. Uh, essentially, let, let them go, and, and, and then they develop this culture of, of, of wanting to, to have an impact, and then they want to recruit others who are like them, and it becomes this positive feedback cycle. Aside from the COVID pandemic, have there been any other periods of crisis for your department that necessitated focused engagement and solutions? My first year after I arrived, the medical center went through what, unfortunately, a number of other medical centers had to go through subsequently, which was a reduction for us. So kind of a you know, a nice way of saying that that we were, uh, as a medical center, having to let go of maybe 8% of the, the staff uh, across the, the medical center. And that was really, really difficult. It didn't directly affect faculty in that we weren't letting faculty go. But it meant that when we're having to let people go, it meant that there wasn't the funds available to do the other stuff that we needed. And the other stuff that we need in radiology is very expensive capital. And so we, we for a number of years, uh, we, we weren't replacing capital at the, uh, the rate that we would have liked. And so that meant as we would uh, need to scan more and more patients and on, on older equipment that would break down, it would end up in this vicious uh, cycle. Uh, fortunately, things are so much better now, and we're in the process of, of doing this whole infrastructure redesign. But it, it was, uh, for a number of years, um, it, was, it was really difficult. 
what strategies and tactics did you bring to bear to manage through that? Well, I, th- I think uh, soliciting the the input of of others and having as much as possible empowering leaders to to manage their 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 own areas, allowing them to set goals, and then for us until until COVID, we we, we took a pause during during COVID with as did everybody with kind of in person leadership meeting. Since I started, we had had uh, strategic retreats where we would have our section leaders come together and propose their section goals. They'd have five goals, and then they would have to share how they were doing, the target, threshold, reach on their goals, share it with all the other sections. Sometimes the goals between sections would be shared, and then I would also share the, the goals that I had as, as a a department chair the, with the, the healthcare system. So as much as possible, aligning us on what we were trying to accomplish and being transparent about what those goals would be and how we're doing, I think was, was quite helpful. There's a statement that if you can't measure it, change it. That's not entirely true. In fact, I don't think it's true at all. Uh, but I would modify it to say that if you if you can measure it, it does give you a much greater chance of trying to change. That, that, that was, I think, one of the, the, the critical steps. Along those lines, as you articulated, when times are lean and capital budgets get trimmed and you know portable units are stuck in repair or CT scanners are down and it's starting to impact the operations, you know, there seems to be a really compelling argument for mobilizing some resources, yet there are many other departments in the hospital that have the same concerns. And so when it all rolls up into a capital allocation committee and it's been lean for a while, uh, how do you sort of approach the balance of data availability to somehow articulate how to prioritize capital allocation when it's limited versus you know, helping to, you know, essentially holistically meet the needs of the medical center? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And that was something that took me a number of years to realize, Jeff, you, you hit on, on, I, I think what was the, the, the critical, the critical piece that I had, uh, I had missed early on with trying to advocate for our department and what, uh, what we ended up doing was Preparing weekly update of how many outpatients were impacted by by down, and so there was the numbers of patients, and then we tied that also to we we gave it through a formula what we estimated the loss in revenue was. So we had, and we just weekly, I just send that to the CEO, not not in a like take that, but, but in a, hey, we're, we just want you to, to understand the effects. This affects the experience of patients as, as the data will show over time. It's actually more patients than you had considered. And it, it, it fundamentally affects, it affects revenues because we're, we're, we're losing, you know, we're losing all those revenues that, that would have happened and would have been available had our, our equipment been functioned. 
that was the single that was the single most important thing. You currently serve as the chair of the board for the Vanderbilt Medical Group. What does that role entail? That role entails advocating for the interests of our clinicians and essentially what are the the operations that we can include to enhance the care of of patients and I, I think to improve the practice of our clinicians. And who are you advocating with or to? Well, in the, the, the practice itself at Vanderbilt, there aren't any clinicians who have privileges within the main medical center who are not faculty. So we have what would be a closed, uh, a closed system at our, uh, at our main campus and, and, and outpatient uh, centers. So that, pre- that presents a lot of opportunities, say, compared to other hospitals that may have an open system in trying to standardize the, the care. So as, the, as the, the chair of that board, I, uh, in many ways, I, I represent the, uh, the interests of all of the, uh, the clinical departments at, at Vanderbilt and for the clinicians who are, are really trying to deliver the best care that they can. Well, I, I think it's fantastic that you have that position. How did you attain that appointment? Well, you know, I've I've been here at at Vanderbilt for a little over eight years, and I think coming in as a as a new chair, the first responsibility is always, you know, how do you how do you help the the department? And I I think as we we spend uh, time in that uh, in that role and try and uh, help our department, there 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 comes a time after a few years where uh, where the deans or the CEOs may uh, ask chairs to, to start taking on new responsibilities. So we go from what would be a classic maybe freshman in high school or college and you become a sophomore. And of course, the, the sophomores are, are kindly known as wise fools. So, so you know, you, we, we, we know a little bit more and we can help. As we spend more time in an institution, we understand the culture. We make all of the, the important interpersonal relationships. And I think radiology in general is a field where so much travels through us, we affect everyone. And I, I think that's an important opportunity for us in radiology to consider how can we benefit our health system. In what ways specifically has the role been synergistic with your role as chair of radiology? Well, I, I think some of, the, uh, some of the areas that we're trying to advocate include include well-being and so when either as an institution or as a department chair we we sometimes are asked we ask our clinicians to do certain things some of those are externally imposed if cms has new uh, compliance uh, requirements for those of us who have either have ever worked at the the va great example of there can be new regulatory uh, requirements of the practicing of physicians. So when those happen externally, we have to figure out how do we, uh, how do we navigate that and what we might do to mitigate, if you will, the, the external institutional burdens placed on our clinicians. There are other times where with the best of intentions, and I, I think 
faculty affairs offices are, are, are terrific at this. With the best of intentions, we, we try to develop guidelines for promotions and we maybe ask our, ask our faculty to submit their, their dossier in these, these, you know, these, these really meticulous ways that, that don't really add value to the process. They don't really help the reviewers. They certainly don't help the faculty that are trying to prepare these, these really complex educator portfolios. And it's counter to the well-being of our, of our faculty. So it's important for us to discern, are we asking a faculty member or a clinician to do something for an external requirement? Or is this something that we're self-imposing and being able to, to understand that difference allows us, I think, to, to target some of the institutional well-being. I would say institutional well-being, maybe I'll, I'll explain it a little different. It, it, it allows us to, to understand what we can control that might enhance the well-being of our faculty. Within the role, do you ever find yourself at odds with your department's interests? Well, Jeff, you know, that, that's a great question. And I think leaders always are faced with, with times where they have to ask, what I'm going to ask our team to do is for the greater good, even though it may not be in the interests of the smaller team. So as a, as a radiology chair, we may ask a section chief to do something that's not in the interests of their section, but it's in the greater interests of the department. As a department chair, we may need to ask, we may need to ask our department to do something that, that doesn't benefit the department directly, but it benefits the greater good of the, the institution, which then indirectly will benefit the department long term. That's actually a pretty, pretty standard requirement of leaders. And that's actually an area where I think with the best of intentions, emerging leaders may choose to die on the wrong mountain. You know, every, everything needs to be uh, assessed through, through a series of, of lenses, the individual, the, 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 the team, and, and more broadly, the institution. And as we've seen with covid society. What is important for all of us? How can we contribute to the greater good? Do you have a specific example you can recall that was hard for you to ask your team uh, to do in the interest of the greater good? Well, in, in terms of, of the pandemic, I think all of us were, were navigating that on the, on the fly. In, in the early days of the, of the pandemic, when we really didn't know, you know what were the, the factors for, for contagion from, from the, the, the virus, just, just the practical issues if we were going to do a procedure on a, on a patient with, with COVID, do we or do we not do the, the procedure? And we, we set pretty clear guidelines of a, if a patient shows up, we should do the procedure. And that, that in, in the moment, that, that certainly led to a, a lot of potential angst. But fundamentally, the patients needed us. If, if we weren't there, who would, who would do it? Amongst your administrative roles outside the department, strategic planning seems to factor prominently. Tell us about your efforts to set strategy for your medical center. 
Well, in 2016, the Vanderbilt University Medical Center formally transitioned uh, to be a separate entity from Vanderbilt University. And it, it was one of those, those things, if we, if we look, many, many medical centers are actually vastly larger in terms of, of revenues and size and, and staff than their accompanying universities. And we at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, the, the, the board recommended that, that we, uh, we become a separate entity because we wanted to continue to grow to meet the healthcare needs of our entire region. And if we, uh, if, if we continued to be part of the university, the ability for us to go out into the bond markets and, and try and and use that uh, investment to, to fuel growth was was limited. So in doing that, we we had the opportunity to develop a on on one hand might be considered a uh, strategic plan for the the medical center. We we chose to call it the strategic directions and think of it as a as a compass. You know what were the directions that we wanted to take, recognizing that. Healthcare and the nation, in many ways, were changing so fast that something that might be a traditional five-year plan would be outdated shortly after it was it was inked. I was really fortunate to co-lead those those efforts for the the medical center and try and bring bring together our faculty, our staff, our, our trainees in uh, in developing the the future of our medical center. Was it challenging to achieve alignment around priorities? Well, I, I would say there was a lot of anxiety during the, the the transition because there was, you know, different stakeholders had, with good reason, one the 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 wonder how would this affect them. And I, I remember one, one thing I learned from doing this is that. Inclusion is is a you know a core value. I think that a lot of us uh, is, aspire to. We think of uh, diversity, inclusion. We think of equity. Inclusion, by its very nature, means to include the uh, the voices of of those who maybe weren't at the at at the, the table. And uh, the process of inclusion and how to operationalize that is actually really challenging. What many faculty felt during that transition was, hey, would I, would I be losing the ability to have a, an academic focus? Would I be working for, quote, a hospital? And so we had to, we had to guide them through that, that actually they're continuing with their, their faculty. And th- this is a way that we, we wanted to enhance the academic mission by being able to grow, which then would lead to more funding that could be thrown into our, our academic mission. So I, I learned a, a, a lot about how to bring people together from different areas and to, to, to have them have a voice and to include the voices of people who were not traditionally considered as part of, a, uh, of an academic strategic plan. So we, we purposely, as when we would bring together people for our annual strategic retreats, we would remove all titles. 
Uh, we didn't want to have a hierarchy. Uh, somebody would have a title over somebody else. And, and that was one of the, our core principles. With about five years since establishing that initial strategic direction, has the planning led to tangible actions and outcomes that you can identify? Yeah, so so it's 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 been an amazing ride, and the journey the journey can, continues, and we you know we've established new uh, our strategic directions. I'll just say are 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 quite easy to uh, to remember because there's there's only three of them. So so one is designed for patient and families. The the other is discover, learn, share, and then the uh, the third is to make diversity and inclusion intentional. For all of our departments, as we've developed our own strategy for moving forward, instead of, of thinking of it as clinical research and teaching, to think of it in, in terms of uh, these directions has allowed uh, us to, to grow in many ways. We've developed new institutes. We developed a new institute for uh, infection and immunology, and we did that well before covid who would have known? Who would have ever have predicted that that would have then played such a, a seismic role in the uh, the vaccine and the antibody development that that Vanderbilt has has taken such an important lead in nationally? And then we we have redesigned our our clinical practices. I think to be to really to focus from the attention of our patients and their family needs, and a lot of that has has moved our, our practices off of what would be the traditional main campus and going to these placing clinics out into the community where, where there's non-covered parking. There's, par- there's places and expanding our, our geographic footprint. That's another very clear, tangible outcome. You are a deeply committed mentor. What is your approach to mentorship? So mentorship is is something that I, I would say for me I'm I I am the product the product of all of my my many mentors. It's my responsibility I think then to serve as a conduit for their their many teachings to me and to share that with with mentees. And I, I'm really like a, a like a transmission vessel. I think we had talked earlier, I, I, I have, you know, perhaps what might be called a, a visual memory or a photographic memory, but I also have the ability to remember exactly who and when someone taught me something that actually has become part of me. And I remember Eric Russell, one of my mentors from Northwestern, the chair of radiology at the time, you know, he, he taught me something that that's very... It sounds so simple that it's almost like cliche. It's uh, that you have to care. You have to really care, and and so I think the the perspective of our mentor mentee relationships is to uh, is to really care about the success of our of our mentees. And when we look out for our mentees, we have to understand: Are we doing? Are we asking them to do something that is in our own self-interest as a mentor, or is it really in their their interest? Really tangible right now as new faculty are coming on board. It's early July. 
I share with our new faculty, don't, don't write book chapters. Don't, there, there isn't the academic credit from, from them for that, that investment of, of time. And so recognizing that the success of our mentees is often based on helping them make the choices that will advance their, their careers. If they have a hundred shits of effort, our, our role as mentors should be to help guide them where to allocate that, that effort. Because when you, when we start off, we, we may not know where everything seems great. It's like we're, we're, we're a kid in a playground. I try and teach mentees the, the, the value of, of developing important social networks. So meeting as many people inside and outside of radiology, but then really focusing on their own output. And so whatever that might be, understanding their goals, and then recognizing that there is also a difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Do you adapt your mentoring style to the mentee? Absolutely. I, I think when my mentees, uh, when we start out, I'll tend to, we'll tend to meet more, more frequently and spend a lot of time looking at what their overall career goals are. And then I, I, I really try to get them, I, I have what I call as the in- existential index card. And it's, uh, I'll, I'll give them a little card that says, I want to be known for. And there's just, you know, you have just a little room to write down, I want to be known for. And whatever that for is, the more in trying to mentoring someone, it, you know, it can be like, I want to be known for being a leader in radiology, or I want to be known for being a, a clinician educator, or I want to be known as the go-to interventional radiologist. You know, those are different, those are different paths we need to be careful as mentors to not look at at our mentees as you know earlier career versions of ourselves because they they may have very different goals and we need to understand those goals as opposed to trying to genetically create a whole bunch of like you know new versions of ourselves yeah that that's a terrific vehicle you just you taught me something valuable there. I really appreciate that, Reed. What have been some of your most valued mentoring relationships? Any in particular that you might call out? You mentioned Eric Russell. Uh, any others you might share? Oh, my goodness. There have been so many. I, I can run through a, a series. Bruce Hillman, who was chair of radiology at UVA when I was a resident, he taught me so much about in terms of doing research, how Im- important it was to have the, uh, the, the outputs and try to use, you know, you have to cross the finish line. When I moved to Wisconsin, you know, Tom Grist, you know, he, he taught me, he gave me a, 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 this, this advice for grants, uh, apply early and often. Oh my goodness, I applied to so many grants, uh, most of them uh, of the time I failed, but sometimes I was lucky. And, you know, Fred Lee really, really taught me so much about, about leadership and how to try and rally people. And Bob Bogelsang at Northwestern taught me the value of, you know, you hire, you hire the best people, give them autonomy, 
give them the resources and get out of their way and they'll, they'll create great things. And I go, I go forward now at, at, at Vanderbilt and I've had so many mentors there. It just keeps going and going. And I, uh, I try to, I try to take all of that with immense gratitude and give it back to others so that it becomes, it becomes something beyond us as individuals. It's like, you know, the, the, the wisdom learned it's, it's, it becomes uh, outside of the body. It's like a spirit, if you will. It's, it's a soul. It's something that, that cannot only be passed on, but should be passed on and outlive us. As a department head, you strive to create a culture that encourages mentorship, and if so, how? Well, I, I, I think as, a, as you mentioned culture, culture's a, a, a funny thing. It, we had talked earlier about, you know, measuring how, how they're, 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 you know, culture is, is like the personality of a department, of an organization. And yes, we can, we can give these really longer, we can give these longer definitions, but fundamentally culture is like when you land in a, in a place, how does it, how does it feel to work there? I was speaking with, with somebody at a, at a very prominent tech company and he was describing their culture and you know, he described their culture as, uh, this was the exact word. It was aggressive. Oh my goodness. I, I, I'm glad you're working at that. I, I just, I wouldn't want to be a part of a, of a culture that is considered aggressive, but I would like to be part of a, of a culture that is, you know, is, is collegial, is collaborative, is creative, a, a culture where people are willing to try something. And uh, maybe it won't work. And people are willing to, to support one another and recognize that we're not, all, we're not all the same person. And if we want people to succeed, we need to spend some time developing that, that empathy and that EQ and understanding what they might be good at, where there's a need, and, and try and match, match that. And so setting a culture that uh, wants, to, wants to cultivate leaders, I think that's really important. And that goes back to our mission statement of, of Vanderbilt Radiology. It's to design and apply technology that benefits patients and to cultivate leaders. The notion that when we finish our training, we're done with learning is bunk. I hear you and I, every day we, we learn. The moment we stop learning, why get out of bed? You will become the president of the Association for University Radiologists next year. Amongst your current duties as the president-elect, you have selected the theme for the 2022 annual meeting as sustainability, climate change, and radiology. What is your vision for how this meeting will reflect that topic? What a great question. And it's kind of a, to be honest, it's kind of a softball because it's so, it's so, it's just so viscerally something I, I care about. And you know, let, let's just take a step back and recognize what the pandemic has taught us. And we in academic medicine, we in higher education, we cannot have the impact that we strive for if we place these walls around, around our campuses. And what is clear as day from the, the pandemic that the really, the big thorny problems 
need to be tackled every everywhere and we need to all contribute in ways that we can and so maybe as a radiologist we you know we can't help with vaccine development but what we can do is we can try to convince our neighbors and our friends outside of medicine that the importance of getting vaccinated um, that's that's like a really tangible thing. And I, I know in my own neighborhood, one of my neighbors would say during the height of the pandemic, they would always, uh, they, they would look and watch when I would be out with my kids and my wife and my dog walking. And they would, they would try and watch us. And they would, uh, we were like a biomarker for, for how, how the pandemic was going. And so if they would see us like laughing and having fun, they're like, oh, all right, we're not uh, we're not all going to to croak because of coronavirus, and so we actually can influence others by our behaviors in ways that that we hadn't considered. And I, I had never thought about this. I just go out with my my kids and my wife and my dog, and we'd have some fun, and we'd throw the frisbee, throw the football, what what have you. So climate change is is one of those those areas where. We, we all have an opportunity to make a difference in the choices we make. And uh, we also have, it's getting back to the, the mentorship uh, standpoint. Uh, you know, climate change isn't, uh, it, it's not just about now. It's not about our mentees. It's about the next 500 generations our grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren, you know. So we, we need to think about uh, the equity of the planet in the broadest terms and getting back to the values that we hold, how can we create a, a world that is sustainable for, for others, that extends beyond ourselves, that is, is something that can flourish? And what opportunities, and this moves into the leadership, do we have as radiologists to try and make a difference what ways can we uh, can we understand how to reduce fossil fuel usage personally at our own medical centers? What ways can we think about ordering imaging equipment based on its energy utilization? What algorithms might be more uh, efficient than others? How do we develop a curriculum for radiologists around climate change? What sort of support uh, might there be for research? Uh, are there other places outside of NIH that we might seek uh, funding? Are there ways to, to make an impact? We had talked about uh, leading medical groups. Well, what about uh, developing chief sustainability officers at medical centers? And we, as leaders in radiology, we should be committed to because every medical center is going to have a chief sustainability officer in the future. Radiology, let, let's make it a goal to, to have 10, 10 radiologists in those positions nationally. That's how we can have an impact. And so for the AUR meeting, the goal, I think, is to, to try and build that sense of, you know, what is the art of the possible here? What might we do collectively? How might we think differently? And how do we tie this even to the broader concept of equity, diversity, and inclusion? Because we know that climate change is a public health issue. It is an equity issue. It is a, 
uh, social justice issue. And so there, there's so much opportunity moving forward uh, for us to, to, to serve and to lead. Yeah, that, that is so well articulated and such a tremendous vision. You know, at some level, some folks might wonder whether there's a goal to put a carbon footprint in the balance against value of information related to diagnostic imaging and that somehow, you know, we need to weigh the two against each other. But what I just heard you articulate is, no, this is about taking the leadership position that physicians are in, the leadership position uh, that radiologists occupy and using it as a platform to show the importance of the topic of sustainability, of attentiveness to climate change, and all of the other associated issues, and less about, you know, balancing against healthcare. Yes, I, I think really well said there, Jeff. I, I, I think with the best of intentions, many people fall victim to what I would just call binary thinking. So viewing things as, as a trade-off, and therefore we just don't want to want to do it. I, I, I think we need to go in the, the improv mode of yes and and, and recognize and le- leaders, I, I think it's important for leaders to feel comfortable holding simultaneous ideas that, that might oppose one another seemingly. And if the world is structured that way, life is structured that way, if only things were simple enough that, that we could, uh, we, we do something good and it's good for everything, if only. But you know what? Life would be a hell of a lot more boring if it was that way. And I, I think that's, that's what the world needs. That's what radiology needs. We need leaders to feel comfortable with that ambiguity, with that uncertainty, and leaders who can inspire others to feel comfortable with that and, and recognize the, the more we... Uh, the more we can feel comfortable in that area of discomfort, I think the, the, the more impact we can have. In preparation for our conversation, you sent me a two-page bio. And the first line of the bio is written in boldface type and reads, quote, audience colon radiology. What other audiences does Reed Omri play to? <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a citizen, so I am a, I'm just one person like anyone else out there. I have a lot of interests that are, that are inside and outside of radiology, and they're a part of me and who, who I am. And I, I think I really enjoy working with anyone who is, is trying to do something creative, is trying to do something new, is trying to do something unknown. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd classify it as similar to, to being a, a parent. When we see our children have their innate curiosity, we need to do everything we can to, to continue to, to catalyze that and have it, have it grow. And, and the, the, the problem is that many of our, of our institutional structures end up trying to curtail that, that curiosity. So, how secondary education works. All right, you got you got to like show up in, in a non-COVID world. You show up in school and you sit down at this desk in you know 45, 50, 52 minute aliquots. The bell rings, so you know it's like this Pavlovian thing. And then we got to go to another. We sit down again and then do it over and over. So af- after a while, we kind of you know beat 
out the curiosity of uh, of our of our children, and it, it, it's it's done because we, we you know they've got to learn a lot. So it's done with the best of intentions. What we need to do fund, fundamentally is keep that curiosity because that curiosity is that that's the that's the key I think to a fulfilling a life a life of constant learning. It's also, I mean, in, nowadays we're concerned about well-being, but just fundamentally having a curious mind, it's something to be, you know, coveted. It's something to be, and, and, and it, we're all born curious. So it gets beaten out of us. Let's make sure we, we can find it again as adults. You list acting as an interest on your CV. How have you pursued your interest in acting? This is a this is a great example of landing in something fortuitously. So I hadn't really cons- maybe a couple of years ago. I, I realized for about ever since I graduated from my fellowship training, I've been taking like nighttime classes. I didn't even realize I was doing it. It was so it was so insidious. I, I didn't realize that I've, I've been doing it for two decades. And so, you know, anything from like bike repair to film studies to songwriting to vocals to, you know, guitar playing. And then as I, as I moved to Nashville and had really young kids, it was, uh, it was really hard to find the energy taking on a you know, new position as chair, really young kids and getting them situated. There was a there was a point probably after four years here where I was like, all right, it's time. The kids are a little bit older. I, I have some energy. So so what the hell am I gonna do? And my my wife knows me really well, and she she's very supportive of that. So it was over Christmas break. I was like, all right, start the new year, and I'm getting back into my class mode. And so I I just went online, and it was like, what is available? And there, there was this acting and improv. I've, I've never, never done that. My wife was a was a drama major, and her brother is a is a filmmaker. I'm like, hmm. All right. So I, I actually, I emailed the 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 head of the the acting program, and I said, you know, I, I I've never acted. Is this something that that I could do? And I, I just want to want to learn. And she she had worked. At the cancer center at Vanderbilt, as it turns out, like a decade before, she's like, "Sure." I joined. We we learned this technique, the Meisner technique, and it was built initially on improv, and it really taught me. I, I would say is one of the most practical leadership gains that I've had is from the acting and improv classes. It's helped me pay really close attention to others, very tangible. What are the physical manifestations of emotions? And I can, you know, within a second, I can generally look at, at someone and uh, determine their, their, their mood, give them a few seconds to speak. And I know, uh, I know even more. And I use that every day in meetings to understand. Uh, it's harder with COVID, mind you, because of the Zoom stuff. But in, in person meetings, I can generally tell the mood of someone before they've they've even said one word. In terms of public speaking, acting is incredibly helpful. 
to give the, the confidence and improv, frankly, that is one of the most portable skills for leaders and recognizing it's not no, get rid of the word but from our language. That's a horrible word. No, but means essentially that I, or yes, but neither of those are good. It's yes. And we'll, uh, we'll figure it out. That's superb. It's really intriguing that after so many years of leadership experience and so many roles played within the context of healthcare and academia, that exposing yourself to some of the fundamentals and rudiments of acting uh, had a profound impact on how you approached your leadership. Yeah, I, I, I cannot over emphasize that. And I'll, I'll, I'll say that that's been as important to my development and my, my personal fulfillment as, as anything else I've, I've, I've ever done. And it, it actually, I, I think, as a, as a way of trying to develop leaders, I think it's incredibly underutilized in, in medicine Yes, every now and then there may be like a 90-minute, you know, some career development session where they bring some improv person, but then it's, you know, it's promptly forgotten. But the application of the principles of, of acting and, and recognizing it's the, the emotions. And I, I, I think one of my like epiphanies, and I, I think I told you that I always remember exactly when I, when I got it, we were in the one of the acting classes. We were supposed to select a poem that was a, a character. So we had this book of poetry. You know, I selected I selected one of the characters, and I told the the, the teacher I want to do this one, and she said why. And then I I said, well, uh, you know, I think this. You know, a, a good uh, a good academic. You know, I think this, and she just stopped me, and she said. I don't give one lick of, of caring about what you think. The only thing that I care about is what you feel. Now, I want you to start over and you tell me how this poem makes you feel. Oh, my goodness. That, that, they're, they're in, like, that encapsulates everything in medicine is we try to take away the emotion. You know, caring for, for ill patients, well, we can't get too attached to them because it'll make us feel awful. Trying to, you know, motivate a team, well, we, let's give them the data, let's give them the facts, let's tell them why we're, we're doing this. It's, it's actually, the, the, the emotions is what makes us human. And it gets back to, we beat the curiosity out of kids in secondary school and I think our medical training uh, often in an unintended way can, can beat out our, our, our natural emotions. And so with acting, we have the ability to, to kind of reconnect with that primal human condition of, of feeling. And that, that goes to EQ and empathy and it all, it all is interconnected. That's beautiful. It makes me feel warmth and joy. <laughs> You mentioned your family and young kids. Uh, tell us about your family. So my my wife is a uh, is a psychiatrist who is uh, she's the psychiatrist for 
transplant surgery at, at Vanderbilt. And so she is, you know, super, super specialized and she, she's just been an incredible partner for me. And we met when I was in Charlottesville. Uh, I was a resident. She was a, a medical student. We have three kids and, you know, my oldest will be starting seventh grade. And then I've got twins that will be starting fourth grade. I feel really lucky to, to, be, uh, to be a husband to my wife and to be a father to my, my kids. And I, I think all of, of us who are, are fortunate enough to have partners or to, and or to have kids, it, it's, it's, it's part of what makes life great. Yeah, yeah. It's a busy life. And uh, raising kids, particularly multiples, you know, um, uh, we have triplets. Yeah, triplets. Uh, yes, oh, my yes, goodness. Yeah, we do. But, uh, you know, certainly respect uh, the challenge of uh, raising twins. It's kind of triplets light. But, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, that being said, you know, how do you balance? You know, you've got so much going on, you know, not only, you know, professionally, and you're taking on all of these extra dimensional leadership roles and such, and your personal development and, and, and learning and education. You know, how do you give to your family? How do you balance that? Yeah, that's the that's the the million dollar question, and I, I think that's that's something that we I would answer it by by saying that there's there, there's things that are are puzzles, and there are things that are mysteries, and the, you know the puzzles are are we we know exactly if a piece is missing, and we know exactly when we're successful, and you know most people treat every challenge like a like a puzzle. And many things in life are, are mysteries. You don't know if you're doing it right. You'll never be like fully, fully complete with that. And and the the issue of how we how we spend time with our uh, with our families is one that I think just like how we want to reflect on our own spiritual sides or how we want to reflect on why we're here. You know, existentially, we want to constantly really mull over. There, there, there really aren't any, uh, aren't any answers. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not evading the questions. I'll give you some, some tactics that I, I employ. But fundamentally, I'm, I'm always uh, trying to reflect: how would I have done this differently? How would I spend more time? Or I think the key is, is, is really to, to constantly think: what can I, uh, you know, what can I do with my my family. How do we do something together? I like to go hiking, so we we you know each week we'll go on a on a hike in the summer to go uh, to to a pool. So an activity that is shared, I think, is you know for some people it might be going in a post COVID world going to a baseball game. For others, it might be going to a movie theater. Uh, and I think doing things together that can help make those links that glue with, with the, the, the family. And I, uh, you know, pre COVID something that I would do with my kids every weekend is we, we go to the library we, we go check out, uh, check out books and, you know, reading together as a, as a, as a family is, is something it's important. We all know our kids, uh, just like us as adults battle screen time. Um, and we, uh, I'll just tell you point blank. We don't have that one solved. We do not have that one solved. Yeah. yeah. As you point out, it's a, it's a challenge that everybody faces in this uh, modern world of ours. 
Innovation is a topic that factors prominently in your speaking engagements and in the podcast that you host called Innovation Activist, Designing Healthcare's Future. How do you define innovation? That's a great question. And you, you ask 100 people and they'll give you 100 different. Uh, and, and so I, I think of, of in innovation as delivering something new it can be a product, a service, it can be a field of study that is adopted by others. I don't think of, of innovation as like, it's just something new, just because it's new, it's, it's innovative. I would consider going back to the COVID era, masks. Masks were an innovation that the launch of that innovation failed. And it wasn't treated as an innovation. And it was treated as an innovation. We would actually consider, we would have considered how, how do we build adoption of it? Because in the United States, it wasn't standard practice to wear a, a mask. And so I, th I think if we could have a do-over and rewind, I, I think that that would have been a, a great mindset to use an innovator's mind. Because the, the, the way we, we promote adoption is then getting back to our understanding of social networks, our understanding of influence, our understanding of different identities and needs. So as, as, an, as an innovator, we, 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 we can't be comfortable with just, hey, here's something new or I think this is good. If somebody isn't adopting it, yeah, I don't really consider it an innovation. And in developing a podcast dedicated to the topic of innovation, what do you seek for your audience and what outcomes do you wish that you would achieve through this podcast? I think the, the ability for people to, to understand that we can, uh, we all can, can innovate and we all can have a mindset of asking those, those important questions and, and thinking that we're not comfortable with where we are and it should be iterative and we, we constantly need to, to, to strive in every way we can to make the world better. And through healthcare, there are, are so many opportunities we have uh, inside and outside of, of radiology. Looking ahead, what excites you the most about radiology? I think what excites me most about radiology are the, uh, the medical students and residents who we are recruiting into our field. I think our, our, our future depends on on people. And uh, we have such a dynamic uh, group of, of medical students and residents in radiology. And, you know, if, if you recruit the best players and uh, we as, as, as coaches can help form them into this uh, highly functioning team, we'll, we'll win. And I, I, have a, I have in a best possible way, I, I, I do have a competitive spirit for our specialty. That's who we are. We will play and we will play to win because that's who we are in radiology. Well, Dr. Reed Omery, I have really enjoyed spending this time with you. You are both inspirational and introspective in all the best ways and uh, passing along such insightful thoughts about leadership in our field. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. today. It's been a real honor. Thank you so much, Jeff. Please join me next month when I speak with Dana Smetherman, 
a breast imager who serves as the chair of radiology and associate medical director for the medical specialties at Oshner Medical Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Smetherman chairs the Breast Commission of the American College of Radiology and is a member of the Board of Chancellors of the ACR. She has served as president of the Radiological Society of Louisiana, board member for the National Accrediting Program of Breast Centers, chair of the Technical Exhibits Committee of the Radiological Society of North America, advisor to the current procedural terminology panel of the American Medical Association, and board member and schools and scholarships chair for the Harvard Club of Louisiana. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.